Oh Lord, what we have just sung is, is truly our prayer. Oh, grant us grace, Almighty Lord, to read and mark your holy word, its truths with meekness to receive, and by its holy precepts live. That's what we desire, Lord, that we would have ears to hear, hearts to receive, and wills to do that which you command and promise us. And so, Lord, we're, we're excited about this, this new study, and pray, Lord, that you would use it uh, for the strengthening of our faith. Uh, but Lord, we pray even more so that, that through the study of this word, that you would work in our hearts a heart of repentance and faith, that we might walk in a way that would bring glory and honor to your name. We pray, Lord Jesus, that as people look at Kirk of the Plains, that what they would see is Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask uh, you, only you, that is able to accomplish such a, a great thing amongst the people that are so weak and in so need of your continued grace each and every day. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, kids, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in Sunday school and the teacher asks you a question and you don't know the answer and so you just sort of guess? And you might start throwing out answers like, uh, uh, um, God is the answer, or, or, or the Bible, or, or even better yet, the best answer, right, is it? Jesus, right? Jesus. It seems like Jesus is the answer for so many things that's asked in, in Sunday school. Well, kids, today we're going to start a study in a New Testament book, the book of Hebrews, and believe it or not, kids, guess what? Jesus is the answer to the book of Hebrews. As, as we study it. And so today what I want us to do is to look at this book and to look at the themes and the author and the audience and just sort of get a feel for what were the circumstances of what these Christians were going through before we get into the actual verse-by-verse -verse exposition of it next week. And so first of all, let's just begin by the theme. What is the book of Hebrews about? Well, we've already sort of stated it very simply. It's about Jesus. Uh, but someone described it this way. In Matthew 17, we see that Jesus took three of his closest disciples up on a mountain where they saw him transfigured in glory as he was talking to Moses and to Elijah. And, of course, Peter was one of the three disciples that were on that mountain. And when Peter saw these three great spiritual men, he wanted to build a tabernacle in honor of each one of them. And as he was considering this, uh, we read in Matthew that the Shekinah glory cloud of God came down and surrounded everybody on that mountain. Now, Kids, do you remember what the Shekinah glory of God is? Remember in the Old Testament where we would read how the Israelites would be there uh, around the temple or the tent of meeting and the Shekinah glory of God would come down upon that temple. And it was so great that no one could approach the temple at that time because to be in the presence of God was just the most amazing thing. Now, Moses from time to time would go in to the presence of God when his glory would come down. And the Bible tells us that after Moses met with God, that he would walk away and his face would shine so bright that 
the people couldn't stand to look at him. You know, I don't know if you've ever looked at the sun, but it's like after you do, you just like you can't do it anymore. And you see spots before your eyes. And it was probably much the same way as the people saw Moses. And so they, he, Moses would have to actually put a covering or a veil over his face until the glory of the Lord uh, sort of faded away. Well, that's what we see here is the glory of the Lord comes down on this mountain and you hear the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Well, Matthew tells us in Matthew 17 that when the disciples heard this voice and they saw this happen, that they fell on their faces. Could you just imagine that? They're down on the ground on their faces and it says that they were terrified. Well, Jesus then came over and he touched them and they looked up and they didn't see Moses or Elijah anymore. They only saw Jesus. Well, A.W. Pink, who he's a preacher of many years ago, he makes this comment on this event. He said, the glory associated with Moses and Elijah was so eclipsed, it was so surpassed, it was so, if you want to say, overshadowed by the infinite greater glory connected with Christ that they faded from view. And that's what the book of Hebrews is about. It's about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that Christ is greater, that as we understand really who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, that everything else that we are tempted to place our trust in fades from our view. Because Jesus is sufficient for everything that we face in this life. And the writer of the book of Hebrews understood that those that he was writing to needed to hear this. Because guess what, kids? They forgot that Jesus is the answer. And so, who, who is this author and, and who is he writing to? Well, when we consider the authorship of Hebrews, we have to first realize that the answer is not in the letter itself. You know, there, there's so many uh, New Testament books where in the opening greeting or in the closing remarks, you know, you, you read things like, I, Paul and Timothy write to you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And they tell us exactly who it is. And but as we look at the book of Hebrews, that's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, we have to sort of look at the internal evidence and look at the style of the writing and, and different pieces of evidence that we see in the book. And I hope you've had a chance to, to read through it. And if you haven't, I encourage you to sit down and read. It takes about 45 minutes, depending on your ability to read, to, to go through this book. So it's not, not terribly long, but uh, I encourage you to, to do that. And But it's also important for us to look and see what the, the church has thought about this throughout history. And throughout church history, there's been a strong impulse to name the Apostle Paul as the author to the Hebrews. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone in church history has thought it was Paul, but, uh, that, but there has been a strong impulse to name Paul, the Apostle Paul as the author. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the letter's content sounds very Pauline. I mean, it sounds like something that, that Paul would write. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 23, uh, the author makes reference to our brother Timothy. And you know that Paul and Timothy had a very close relationship. Timothy was Paul's spiritual son, in essence, and, and co-worker. Also, in chapter 10, as you look at chapter 10, you see the theme of joy 
in the midst of suffering, which here again, that's a very much a, a theme that Paul talked about as well. And so if, if Paul is, is not the author of Hebrews, it's, it's oftentimes argued that the author must have been a member sort of of that circle of co-workers that, that Paul had that he was very familiar with. Now, a second reason to support Paul's authorship, and I think why many in, in throughout church history have, have thought this, has to do with the canonicity of the book. Uh, there was some controversy as to whether this book should be included in the canon, and Paul's authorship sort of strengthens that case dramatically. But having said that, there are a number of difficulties with uh, placing Paul as uh, the author of, of Hebrews. Uh, for example, and I've already sort of mentioned that, that in every other letter that Paul writes, he said, I, Paul. He always identifies himself. But not only does he identify himself, but he also um, blatantly asserts his apostolic authority because he wants people to understand, this isn't for me, people. This isn't my words. These are the words of God, and I speak to you as a messenger of God. But the author of Hebrews doesn't do that. Now, having said that, I do want to make this point as well, that uh, especially for those of you that came on Wednesday nights and went through that study on the canonicity of Scripture, that it's not necessary for Paul to have been an author of Hebrews for it to be included in the canon. As a matter of fact, if you... If you remember from that study, the, the Gospels, the four Gospels, were quickly adopted by the church as being canonical. Okay, But two of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, two of, two of those were not written by apostles, Mark and Luke. Uh, Mark and Luke, though, both were traveling companions of Paul. Luke, also being a doctor, was one who was very careful to go and to talk to eyewitnesses. While he wasn't there, he made sure that he talked to people who were and that he put down a, a, a good account of the things that happened. For Mark, it's believed that Peter was his source uh, to give. So he sort of got it straight from the horse's mouth. So I want you to understand that whether Paul was or wasn't the writer of Hebrews, that doesn't necessarily... Uh, uh, put in jeopardy the canonicity of this book as well. Um, and there were those in the early church who questioned Paul's authorship. I think sometimes when people have this discussion, they think, oh, it's just a bunch of liberal, you know, German theologians that are questioning, you know, these these things. But, uh, you know, even an early church scholar by the name of Origen, you've probably heard of him, uh, you know, this is what he said about Hebrews. He said, the general thought of the epistle is Pauline, but God only knows who wrote it. And so this has been something that's been debated for, for, for many centuries, even from the early church. And so there's been a host of, of uh, possibilities of people who wrote it. Could have been Luke or Silas or Barnabas or Apollos or Paul. But there are difficulties that arise with any human author, basically, that's been suggested. So the bottom line is, is that we don't know for certain, humanly speaking, who wrote the book to the Hebrews. But we do know who wrote it spiritually, right? It's the Holy Spirit that gave us this book. And it's not necessary for us to, to know the author for certain for this book to have validity. I, I really appreciate what John Calvin writes in his commentary on the Hebrews, he says, since the epistle, that is the epistle 
to the Hebrews, contains a full discussion of the eternal divinity of Christ, his supreme government, and an only priesthood. And these things are so explained that the whole power and work of Christ as set forth in the most graphic way, he says it rightly deserves to have the place and honor of an invaluable treasure in the church. And that's what I want us to see as we come to this book. While we may not know definitively who the author is, it doesn't mean that it has to shake our confidence or, or even that it doesn't speak to us today. As a matter of fact, this is a book I think that we're going to find that's very applicable to us today. So as we think about the, the author, those are things to consider. What about the audience? Who is he writing to? Well, the, the title found in the most ancient manuscripts reads simply, To the Hebrews. And that's where it gets the name, Hebrews. Uh, and, and it makes sense. If you've read through this book, you know that it's very Hebraic in, in its tone. It talks a lot about the temple, the Old Testament, sacrifices, the priesthood. It even goes back and talks about more obscure figures like Melchizedek in the Old Testament. But the, the tone of the book also assumes that the readers were Christians. So this book is likely meant for a Jewish community that had converted to Christianity. It's very obvious that the audience had a very significant amount of knowledge of the Old Testament. And so you don't see the writer of Hebrews explaining a lot of things about the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, I think probably more modern day Christians struggle with understanding the context than what the original recipients did. And I, I think that's just because in the modern day church, uh, in, in so much of evangelicalism, we've cut off the study of, of the Old Testament and we've just become quote unquote New Testament Christians because it's all about Jesus right that you know we've just ignored it but unfortunately what happens is when we do away with the study of the Old Testament that we don't really understand Jesus for, for who he is and the fullness of what it's all about so they very much had a, an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament but what's really striking about the book of Hebrews is that when the author quotes the scriptures he oftentimes doesn't use the Hebrew Old Testament. He actually quotes the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which most likely was the version of the Bible that, that this audience was most familiar with. And, and since that's the case, it's, it's oftentimes believed that the audience was probably Hellenistic Jews. It, it was people who were, were Greek-speaking, um, even though they were... Hebrews. So as, as we read the Hebrews, um, that's sort of who we see that they are. But what were sort of the circumstances? What, is it, what was their situation that they were in? Well, as you, as you look at these Jewish Christians, you see that they were a people who were struggling in their faith. And uh, they encountered a lot of different things that, that caused them to struggle in their faith. And I want to look at just a few of these this morning. First of all, they were struggling from persecution. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. Hebrews 10, verse 32. We read, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes, 
being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so you see that struggle that they had. They had their properties taken away. They were publicly exposed and reproached. But there was also a temptation for these Christians to return to Judaism. And there's, there's a lot of that in the, in the underlying overtones of this book. And we'll see that as we go through this book. But let me just give you one verse to turn to. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 9. Uh, you'll read that, that they were really being challenged by a teaching about certain dietary restrictions. Um, and Hebrews 13.9 says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So evidently there was a teaching that they were receiving that actually you would be strengthened by the kind of food or the, by the dietary laws that, that they had. So there was this constant pressure to return to Judaism. But there was also a struggle that they had with sin. I mean, because we all as Christians can struggle with that. But look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Actually, you can, it's Hebrews 3, 12 through chapter 4, verse 3. But we're just going to look at 3, verses 12 and 13. Where the writer says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see that there was that temptation, that struggle of the hardening of their heart because of the deceitfulness of sin that was at work in their lives. But, but, but even um, along with that idea of a struggle with sin was also just an immaturity in their faith. Look at chapter 5 and verse 12. The, the section goes really all the way through six, chapter 6, verse 8, but we're just going to read Hebrews 5, 12, where we read, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And, and so the writer of Hebrews sees in his audience these, these symptoms of, of, of spiritual sickness. I mean, they're, they're struggling in their faith. Part of that was because of the persecutions that they were encountering. But a lot of that was because of the sin and because of the immaturity of their faith. It might be like a parent who is watching their child and they see that, you know what, my child's not developing quite the way that, that I think that they ought to. There must be something wrong. And so what does that parent do? The parent takes that child to a doctor or, or some other specialist to, to help them to, to say, is, is there really something wrong with my child? And, and that's sort of what 
the writer to the Hebrews does. He, he sees these symptoms of spiritual sickness and he knows that they are in spiritual danger. He is even concerned that some of their symptoms might prove spiritually fatal. So he exhorts them on to spiritual maturity. We see that in chapter 6 in verse 1. And he reemphasizes the fundamental structures of the Christian life to them with Christ being the center. That's it. He's, he's saying, look, you need to look to Jesus. You, Jesus needs to be the center of your life. But he also gives them strong exhortations and sober warnings about their spiritual condition. And, and he lists warning signs to these Jewish believers that would really be good for, for all of us uh, as believers to be mindful of ourselves. They look at our own lives and say, what, how does my life stack up to this? And so I want to consider three of these warnings that are particularly relevant to us today. I'm very thankful for uh, the insights that I've gained from Sinclair Ferguson on this. But uh, let me just share with you three of those that we might consider. First of all was the loss of concentration that these Hebrews had. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must... Pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You see, the author of Hebrews is speaking of a, a failure to concentrate, to, to fix our hearts and our minds on Christ. When he says to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, he's talking about the gospel. And of course, Christ being the center of that. So there's a failure of concentration to fix their hearts and their minds on Christ and to make him the chief object of devotion and attention. And, and if you notice in this verse, he actually uses a nautical term to describe what happens if we don't keep our focus on Jesus. He says we simply drift away. We simply slip away. It doesn't require any effort. We don't have to try to fall away from Jesus. All we have to do is nothing. Uh, and, and he likens that to a boat that's been uh, not been anchored. And so that boat is at the mercy of the tide. And, and if we just function within the currents of the world, it, it, it will guarantee our departure from the moorings of the gospel unless we are anchored to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the author says we must pay much closer attention to that which we've heard, to, to Christ. And, and the idea here is, is to take Christ seriously. It is to fix our minds upon that which we hear, upon Jesus Christ. It is the idea of bowing and bending our will to to Jesus. It is applying our hearts to it. It is placing our affection. So as you can see, really the gospel requires bringing the whole person into conformity with Jesus. In, in understanding who he is and walking by faith in him. That's the concentration that the Christian life demands. It's that ability to focus our gauge, gaze and to fill our minds and to devote our hearts to Christ. And that's basic to real Christian growth. Inability to, to do so is a sign of, of immaturity. I think a, a great... Uh, Example of a lack of lack of concentration. Now, maybe this was just our kids. I don't know. But parents, how many times have you told your kids, or maybe aunts and uncles, you told your nieces and nephews to go clean their room, right? And you send them into their room, 
And uh, you go in about an hour later, half hour, whatever it is, and they're sitting there in the middle of the room. The room looks messier than it did when they first started, and they're sitting in the middle playing with a toy or, or some object. And you're thinking, what is going on? And, and you walk in and you say, guys, concentrate! Because you know that they got distracted by this one little toy while they were cleaning up. And next thing you know, they're in their own little world playing with this toy. And while as parents, we might get upset and frustrated by this, we also understand that they don't have the ability that enables them to concentrate like an adult does. Because we know that they are governed by their inner desires and their inner instincts. And so it makes sense as to why they would become distracted. But oftentimes Christians sometimes act like that as well. We, we, we never appear to make spiritual progress uh, in spiritual focus and concentration. There are some Christians that seem to be dominated by their feelings rather than by the gospel. Their powers of concentration on spiritual realities are underdeveloped and they find it difficult to devote their attention to Christ, whether it be in public or private worship and prayer and singing praises to God. You know, as they're singing these songs, their minds are wandering on other things as they're reading the word where they're thinking about all the, the things they need to get done that day. So they find themselves unable to concentrate on the nourishment which would give them strength to grow to maturity. Now, I've heard some people say, well, kids, and now they're even apply it to adults as well. You know, they just don't have they just have a short attention span. You know, kids today just don't have as long of a attention span as as kids years ago do. The problem with that premise is this, that I have seen kids and I have seen adults who will spend hours engrossed with things that interest them like sports and video games and watching TV and reading books and cooking and doing all these things so much so that hours will pass by and they don't even notice it. So, so the problem is really not that we have a short attention span. It's the lack of concentration upon Christ. So my question for us this morning is what is the level of our powers of concentration upon Christ? The second thing that we see with the Hebrews is their poor appetite. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. We've, we've already read that once, but um, 5.12 says, You need milk, not solid food. And then he goes on and he says, Solid food is for the mature. You know, infants cannot and, and actually should not be expected to eat solid food. Their, their digestive system is not ready for it. You know, they have to mature a little bit before they can take in solids and then eventually that big T-bone steak, right? Uh, but as we look at the Hebrews, we find that they are really infants when it comes to spiritual appetite. And they're behaving like infants. And the problem arises because of a sickness in their spiritual digestive system. And as a result, they're spiritually weak because they're undernourished. They have lost their appetite for Jesus now, now what, what causes this kind of uh, lack of spiritual appetite? Why is it that they're still taking in the basic doctrines, basic teachings, the basic practices of what the gospel is, rather than really understanding the depths of that? Well, first, let me suggest that it's because that they indulged in things that, while they weren't necessarily sinful of themselves, 
they weren't spiritually building them. They weren't um, things that would build them up spiritually. Um, I, I don't mean to mix metaphors, but look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 1. We're going to sort of take an eating metaphor and a, a sports metaphor and mix them together. But it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There are things in life that, while not wrong and in of themselves, can can hinder us. And as as the author of Hebrews talks about, you know, for a runner, he wants to throw off everything that's going to get in his way from winning that race. And 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 it's it's the same with our spiritual appetite that we we can be hindered in our spiritual appetite, like Jesus, in the way same way that a weight would weight a runner down, to use the food analogy, it would be like someone who snacks on junk food uh, between meals. If you fill up your whole day eating candy bars, kids, I know as great as that sounds, to have candy bars and ice cream and, and stuff like that, then what, what that means is when it comes to dinner time and your mom has fixed this wonderful meal, you're not going to have any appetite to eat that healthy food because you filled your, your day with all these other things. And likewise, Christians can make the mistake of allowing all kinds of things that are not necessarily wrong to so fill their lives and their minds that there's no room left for spiritual nourishment. Um, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, a very common verse, faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? By the word of God. That anything that distracts us from God's word and knowing Christ is the weight that a Christian needs to, to cast off. Now, sometimes when Christians hear that, we, we sort of react to that a little bit. And we say, now wait a minute, you're telling me that it's, uh, I have to give up things that's not necessarily wrong? I have a right to do those things. And people can actually push back a little bit about that. But turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians sort of this same kind of idea. Uh, they were sort of protesting against what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 by saying, you know, all things are lawful for me. Um, but Paul was trying to help them to understand that actually there's other things that they ought to consider. The whole thing of whether something is sinful or not is not the only category by which we judge what we ought to do and not do. He says, first of all, we should consider, does this help our Christian life? First uh, Corinthians 6, 12, they, the Corinthians are saying, all things are lawful for me. But Paul says, but not all things are helpful. And so we ought to be asking ourselves, is, does this help me in our Christian life? But secondly, we ought to be asking, does this these activities, these things have a tendency to enslave us so that we begin to need it and therefore sort of de develop a, an addiction to it. Uh, Paul says, all, or the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. And Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. We need to be careful that the things that, that we do, you know, we can get so caught up in maybe binge watching our favorite TV show that we're like, oh, I just got to find out what happens. And it's not like it's a drug, but it is sort of addictive. And, you know, we just sort of have to see what, what, what the outcome is going to be. And next thing you know, we've spent hours, maybe even days trying to work our way through this TV series so that we can see how it's going to end. And then Paul also, turn over to chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 23. 
Paul is, uh, is carrying on this whole idea as well. Um, it says in verse 23, all things are lawful. So Paul's sort of carrying on the same conversation. But he says, but not all things are helpful. And then he says, all things are lawful, the Christians say. But Paul says, but not all things build up. And so the, the, the next thing to ask is, does this edify me and build me up into maturity in Christ? And so the person whose only focus is, well, there's nothing wrong with this, will oftentimes remain self-centered and living according to the principles of the flesh. I mean, if nothing else, they're going to just remain baby Christians and be dominated by inner needs and desires rather than by the life-giving word of, of the gospel and being other-focused and ministering to others. And so we, we need to be careful. One of the reasons why we don't grow sometimes and don't have that spiritual appetite is because we indulge in things that are not necessarily wrong, but maybe not helpful. But secondly, we can be influenced by something even worse than that. And if you look back at Hebrews 12.1, uh, there's a phrase I sort of left out there. But Paul says, not only throwing off the weight, but he says, also the sin which clings so closely. If, if we don't deal with our indwelling sin, it will eventually catch up with us. And, and we may disguise it for a while. I mean, I think about if you're going to use the analogy of an athlete, what do some athletes do? They take steroids and they hide that. It enhances their ability to participate in that sport. But eventually it seems like people always get caught. There's always a drug test where that's caught. And it's sort of the same way with us in our sin. We may think that we have our sin managed. We may think that we're doing okay, but we do not have the ability to do so permanently. And one day our spiritual failure will become clear. And so he tells us to cast off that sin that, that clings so closely to mortify that sin. So the second thing we need to ask ourselves is how healthy is your spiritual diet? How healthy is your spiritual diet? So have the loss of concentration. We have a poor appetite. But also, third and finally, just an inability to discern. And it seems like this idea of a poor appetite, spiritual appetite, and spiritual discernment sort of go together. And spiritual discernment not only involves the ability to distinguish good from bad, but also better from best, and the important from the insignificant, and the permanent from the transient. And, and some of the Hebrews lacked that kind of discernment and were in danger of being deceived. And that's what we saw in chapter 13, verse 9, where they had received, uh, they had heard credible teaching. It was actually unbiblical teaching, but it was credible teaching in their mind about foods that were acceptable. And they were swayed by that um, teaching. And so the author had to sort of set them straight. It's a little bit like your kids when they get birthday money, right? Grandma and Grandpa send a check for $5 or $10 or $20, I don't know what, and the kids can go spend it on anything they want, right? And they go in the store, and it seems like our kids are so attracted to junk, right? Because they have fancy packaging, they promise this baby doll will do all these things, but you know that the arm of that doll is going to fall off in a week, or they promise this rocket that's going to shoot up up to 100 feet. Well, up to 100 feet means it's going to go 10 feet up in the air is all. And you know that, but the packaging looks so good. And they don't have the discernment to determine these things. And so you have to help them. And that's sort of what the writers of Hebrew is, 
is is doing as he looks at this. And so we, as Christians, discernment uh, is is very necessary, and and it is that ability to see the nuances not only in teachings but also in how we live our lives as well. We need to not only determine the difference between apparently spiritual things and the the truth of the gospel, but also between what is right to do, wise to do, and what is not wise to do. And a regular diet of biblical teaching helps to develop in us that instinctive wisdom. Wisdom being that knowledge that's put into practice. And so growing in spiritual discernment is an essential element in spiritual maturity. So that leaves us with the third question. Are our spiritual faculties well-trained? Are they well-trained? Are they focused upon Jesus Christ? Is that where we're taken back to? Are we tempted to be swayed and deceived by all kinds of other teaching? Well, as we come to the end of this introduction, I, I really just want us to see, as, as the writer of Hebrews exhorts his audience in, in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And that's what we're going to hopefully do in this study of Hebrews, to look at Jesus more carefully, to see his sufficiency, to see how these things apply to our lives. But, but he, the writer also warns us of a danger of neglecting to seek that maturity, and and in chapter six, you know, we're going to cover in more detail, uh, you know, the whole thing of uh, maturity and falling away. And I know that oftentimes there's a lot of questions about that, but suffice it to say that the author exhorts us to keep our eyes upon Jesus. He is our hope, not only in this life but also for eternity. And so, what do you? What I want you to do this week? What do you? What I want you to walk away from? I want you to pray that the Holy Spirit would prepare our hearts for this series, that, that he would open our eyes to see our hearts for, for what they are, and that we would be granted repentance and those things that we need to repent of, and that we might walk by faith, knowing who Jesus Christ is, and enjoying and maturing in who we are in Christ. Amen? Let's bow our heads as we meditate upon God's word this morning. Our Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is the answer uh, to our our lives and the things that, that we wrestle with. He is our hope. He is sufficient for all that is necessary for for life and for for godliness. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes this week. As we as people spend time reading through Hebrews throughout the week, God, that you would open their eyes and, and see, Lord, that you would help us um, to, to know Christ. Sometimes to, to think that Jesus is the answer seems very nebulous. But I pray that you would help us to see very specifically uh, what that means and, and how that applies to our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray that through this time, that you would give us the strength to to take the discipline, to know your word, to meditate, to fill our minds with the truth of, of the gospel. But also, Lord, that you would give a strength of will to obey those things that we hear, that we would not just quickly dismiss those things, or that your teaching would come in one ear and out the other. But Lord, I pray that you would do uh, a good and, and faithful work 
in our hearts uh, to know more who we are in Christ. And may this lead us, God, to worship you. We pray in your name. Amen.